Welcome! The University of Central Florida's Office of Diversity and Inclusion brings you Matters of Diversity with Dr. B. With your host, Dr. S. Kent Butler. With our guests, Dr. Richard Lapchick and Dr. Matt Rickey. This show is brought to you by UCF Foundation. Thank you. Hotep, and welcome to this week's podcast, Matters of Diversity. So it's really important for me to kind of, kind of give you a clue as to what we're going to do today. Today, we're going to honor Human Rights Day. And typically, it is observed every year on December 10th is the day that was set aside by the United Nations General Assembly um, in 1948 and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is the UDHR, um, was developed and created. The UDHR is a milestone document that proclaims the inalienable rights which everyone is entitled to as human beings, regardless of their race, their color, their religion, sex, language, political and other opinion, national and social origin, property, birth, or other statuses. It's available in more than 500 languages um, and it's, it's the most translated document in the whole entire world. Um, the theme for um, 2020 is recover better, stand up for human rights. So. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're doing here at UCF. We're, we're always making sure that when we say that it stands for opportunity, it stands for opportunities for all, especially with regards to human rights. This year's Human Rights Day theme relates to the COVID-19 pandemic, and it focuses on the need to build back better by ensuring human rights are central to the recovery efforts. We will be um, recognize globally that the goals for this is to create opportunities, equal opportunities for all to address the failures exposed and exploited by COVID-19 and to apply these to human rights standards and to tackle entrenched, uh, my goodness, systemic or systematic and intergenerational um, inequalities, um, exclusions and discrimination. And so we are really, really happy to kind of talk about this today, um, especially when we're trying to rebuild the world um, that we want. And so we're gonna be doing that, um, looking for global solidarity. Today, my guests are Dr. Richard Lapchick, um, who is a human rights activist, pioneer for racial equity and equality, internationally recognized expert on sports and social issues, the scholar and author Dr. Lapchik is often described as the racial conscience of sport. He brought his commitment to equality and his belief that sport can be effective instrument of positive social change to the University of Central Florida in August of, 20, of 2001, where he launched the DeVos Sports Business Management Program. He was inducted into the Sports Hall of Fame of Commonwealth Nations in the category of humanitarian, along with Arthur Ashe and Nelson Mandela. And so we're gonna get a chance to talk with um, Dr. Lapchik today. And also Dr. Matt Rickey, he, him, his, um, serves as the assistant director of the Office of Institutional Equity and Title IX coordinator for UCF. Here he works um, since 2018. During his career, Matt has worked in residence life, student life, leadership development, care and case management, threat assessment, and civil rights compliance. Matt holds a PhD in higher education and student affairs leadership from the University of North Colorado, and MS in experiential education from Minnesota State University in Mercado, and a BA in Spanish from the Western Michigan University. And so, if you will, please join me, Richard and Matt. Um, welcome, and thank you for being here today. I really, truly appreciate that you took the time to be here and to be a part of this conversation. You know, today, 
I would really like to hear from you all, um, basically telling me a little bit about what you're doing, what you do on campus. And then I wanna kind of have an opportunity for us to talk about how do we end discrimination of any kind? How do we address these inequities, especially here at UCF? Um, encouraging participation and solidarity is something that I would like to talk with you all about. And how do we promote sustainable development? And so those are some of the things that I would like to talk to you all about today. But before we even get started there, maybe if you would, just, Richard, could you just talk a little bit about your, your, your career and how you got here um, and, and how it kind of relates to um, this very special day? Well, it is a special day. I was lucky enough to work at the United Nations for six years, and it was a day that was always solemnly commemorated at the UN building uh, in New York and around the world at their other headquarters. Um, I got here because my family was involved in race relations and sport. Uh, my dad was the coach of the New York Knicks and signed the first African-American player in the history of the NBA in 1950, so that my earliest memories literally were looking outside my bedroom window in Yonkers, New York and seeing his image swinging from a tree with people under the tree picketing and picking up the extension phone for the next couple of years with hate calls being directed at him. Again, as a five, six and seven year old, Dr. B, I didn't know what any of it meant except that a lot of people hated this man who was my best friend and only later would I discover why they hated him because of integrating elite that's now 80% black, but a lot of Americans weren't ready for it in 1950. So I grew up in that household. <clears throat> I wanted to be a basketball player like my dad. Uh, he, he's a double inductee into the Basketball Hall of Fame. I was pretty heavily recruited as an eighth grader in New York City because I was tall and I was his son. Ended up going to a basketball camp of, of a coach who um, had, it was a startup camp the first year he was doing it. <clears throat> this again is 1961, so no coaches really had camps. And he had five of his white players and one of his black players and one of the white guys who's been a D1 coach for the last 35 years was dropping the N-word on him uh, all day for the first three days. I finally challenged him and the guy knocked me out cold. Well, the black guy's name at the time was Lou Alcindor, who, of course, became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and a lifelong friendship began to the extent that when he was uh, Barack Obama gave him the Presidential Medal of Freedom, he asked me and Henry Louis Gates to be his two guests. Uh, he asked me to speak at his statue unveiling at the Staples Center. Uh, he came and spoke at a UCF commencement for us. Uh, he helped Taco Fall develop a hook shot. Uh, but what was important for me as a 15 year old white kid from Yonkers was that I suddenly had a young urban African-American lens with which to see what racism was doing in his community and other communities of color. And I decided at that point that I was gonna spend the rest of my life working in the area of civil rights. I really didn't know what that would mean at the time. Um, I went to graduate school and got a PhD in international race relations. It was the first non-physical uh, education, uh, non, yeah, non-physical education dissertation uh, in sport. I did a study on how South Africa used sport as part of its foreign policy and the international response and compared it to how the Nazis had done that in the 30s. It got published as a book. I started speaking about apartheid. I founded the sports boycott of South Africa in this country uh, as the global community was coming together to try to strangle the apartheid regime. It was the largest uh, movement of, of nations against, against the nation in peacetime history. Uh, and the first South African team that was ever gonna come here was a Davis Cup team in 1978. And my role was to try to get those matches canceled so I went down to Nashville where the matches were scheduled to take place. And the African governments with whom I was working asked me to announce they would boycott the 1984 Olympic games if this team was allowed to come. Um, and I made that announcement at a press conference. The a guy named Dick Schapp, who was covering for NBC Nightly News at the time, came up to me and told me that the, it looked like the matches were gonna be canceled. The financial backers had pulled out I announced that to the crowd. It was an anti-apartheid crowd. They went crazy. And when I flew home that night, Dr. B, I thought maybe for the first time in my life, I'd done something worthwhile. I was working late in my college office the next night. Uh, the office was in the school's library, which closed at 1030. At 1045, there was a knock on the door and I assumed it was the campus security. Uh, but when I went to open the door, it was two men wearing stocking masks who proceeded to cause liver damage, kidney damage, a hernia, concussion, and carved the N-word in my stomach with a pair of my office scissors. I knew that night lying in the bed in the hospital that 
uh, if people had gone to the length they did to try to stop my father 28 years before and the length they tried to go to stop me that night, that they must have thought that our using the sports platform to address issues of racism was having an, an effect against racism. And I decided I would spend the rest of my life using that sports platform to do that. And that's what I've done. That's what we do at uh, the DeVos Sport Business Management Graduate Program at UCF. There are 250 graduate programs in sports management, but we're the only one that not only gives the students the business skills to work in sport, but also prepares them to use the power of sport to affect positive social change. Uh, and we also have something called the Institute for Diversity and Ethics in Sport there that does racial and gender report cards on the various sports and the media. Uh, in fact, uh, literally an hour ago, we released the National Football League's Racial and Gender Report Board for 2020. Excellent, excellent. You know, you know, the world can be a cruel place and in, in that there are people who believe that their narrative or their voice is um, better or stronger or necessary, more so than the voice of others. And while, you know, I am extremely sad that any type of violence happens to any person. I'm sorry that happened to you. What it sparked though is phenomenal, right? And so while they may have thought they were gonna silence you, what it really did was it really emboldened you to, to do the work that you're doing. And so for that, you know, much kudos. And I say that to you all the time, but I am so appreciative of you and what you've gone through and your story, right? And that's the whole thing. People need to be able to be in touch and feel someone's story and what they've gone through. So thank you for not bowing out because others really were trying to stop your voice. And so you're very much appreciated, Dr. Latchett. You very much are. I've been blessed, thank you. Thank you. And Matt, how did you get here? What's going on with you? You are um, new as of 2018 to UCF, but you have been making your mark here um, just the same. Well, I, I appreciate the endorsement. I, um, yeah, uh, Dr. Lapchik, just listening to your story is, is both um, gut-wrenching and inspiring at the same time. Um, so uh, to follow, it's, it's humbling, truly. Um, I, um, I started my work in higher education um, in part because I had, um, both a really wonderful experience in my undergraduate university and 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 a pretty um, pretty awful experience at the same time. Um, coming into my own as an undergraduate student and and coming out as as a gay man um, in the late '90s and early 2000s, there was still a substantial amount of discrimination that was happening in the community at large and in my undergraduate institution, and that. Um, that really fueled my passion for doing um, work to address inequity, to address social justice concerns that um, I personally was experiencing and saw that others were experiencing um, for myriad different reasons. Um, and I felt that coming into higher education versus any other profession in the world was this opportunity to use education as a vehicle um, for post-social change. Um, I think that I, I've reflected back on it a number of times since, like, would I still want to work in higher education knowing that, right? Um, all of its pitfalls and shortcomings and challenges. Um, and I always come back to a resounding yes. I still believe in the, in the power of this institution um, of higher education and UCF specifically to be a force for social good. Uh, the work that I do specifically here um, involves um, responding to and addressing um, specifically sex-based discrimination in my role as Title IX coordinator. Title IX is a federal civil rights law, as, as most of your listeners probably know, um, that prohibits sex-based discrimination in all facets of the university's program. Um, and, and so we, we recognize that even though this prohibition of sex discrimination education um, is a matter of law. It was established in 1972 and it's had a long history within education um, that we still have a lot of work to do um, to address all forms of, of sex-based inequity, uh, be it discrimination, sexual harassment, 
or various forms of sexual and interpersonal violence, which pervade um, both higher education and society at large. Um, so I have the, the privilege and responsibility of helping make sure that UCF um, not just complies with Title IX in, in the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, but really transcends that minimum bar to ensure that everybody here has equal opportunity, equal access, and equal rights. Yeah. You know, um, I was listening to both of you speak right now, and, and the thing that kind of went into my head was a lot of the passion behind the work that we do comes from our own life experiences and the narratives that we have gone and lived through. In your own perspectives, how do we bring the voice of others who just have, may have not understood life the same way that we have understood life through the ups and downs and the challenges that we've gone through, the marginalizations, um, you know, the, the threats if, if that was something that was happening as well. How do we get people who are listening in to kind of think about stepping outside of their own interior self and recognizing how um, others in the world are experiencing it, if that makes sense. Um, what, what do you think that we can do to kind of encourage others to kind of find their own narrative, find their voice when they maybe sit in their privilege and don't necessarily see um, what is happening to others as problematic? I think that one thing that's happened in this particular time period during the racial reckoning is that, you know, I hear uh, leader after leader saying that they feel for the first time white people are listening to black people, not just kind of knowing that there's something wrong, but really seeing the impact it can have on individuals right. that they never thought, including all their friends and associates. So I think that's one of the major things that we can encourage people to do is to continue to listen to each other, to read more about uh, the issues that, that we're talking about here this afternoon. There's tons of great books and literature and films out there to do that, um, to get involved in some organization that's working on that locally and volunteer for it. Right. Uh, see if it feel, if it, if it's a good fit to continue doing that forever. If we have the resources to do it, uh, to make a donation, you know, as somebody who's, basically form nonprofits working in the anti-racist space for 50 years. The hardest thing for me to do has been raising money because nobody yeah. wanted to give money to anti-racist organizations. So if you have the capacity to make a donation, small or large, to uh, one of those organizations, I, I would certainly encourage it. Yeah. I think we had something really specific to focus on as a society by uh, focusing on this election, but the election has passed. We have another focus in Georgia uh, that's coming up that's critically important, but I think we have to come up with some creative focal point or focal points to focus on to keep that energy going right. um, so that, you know, we stay together. You know, as you know, it's, it's been the largest mass movement in the history of the country. 27 million people have taken to the streets yeah. uh, in protests in 155 different cities. Um, and it's, you know, gone beyond police brutality. That's obviously a factor that provoked it into, as you said earlier, Dr. Butler, systemic racism uh, and the different layers of, the, of what race, how it affects communities of color or whatever the community is that's being discriminated against. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the ways. And, and I also wanna you know, add just on a personal note, when I was attacked in 1978, so many people came up to me and said, well, now you understand what it's like to be black. And my response to them then, and my response to them now is I don't know what it's like to be black. I can walk away from this movement at any time and resume some kind of comfortable middle-class white life and never face discrimination or violence again. Right. If I was black, I'd wake up black the next day and the threat of the possibility of being discriminated against or having an act of violence committed against you is gonna be there every single day of their life. Hopefully it's never gonna to happen to them individually, mm -hmm. but that potential is there. So there's no way that I as empathetic as I may be and, and as much of an ally can totally completely understand it. You know, you know, your words um, resonate with me because I, I think about that often. And I say very often that as a black man, every day I know when I walk out my door, what I'm walking into yeah. and, um, and what could or could not really kind of happen um, during the course of my day. Right. Uh, 
Matt, I want to bring you in, Dr. Ricky, and I'll ask you a question about um, how do we validate, right? So I, I listened to what Dr. Latrick just shared, and, and I think about it in terms of um, how individuals who don't necessarily feel it the same way that, um, that I feel it, or maybe that you two feel it, um, but how do we encourage people to be able to validate other people's narratives? I think first and foremost, it's important to remember that if somebody is asserting their equality um, in, in public space, that's not a threat to the rest of us. Um, and it shouldn't be perceived as a threat to the rest of us. Um, people want fundamental fairness. They want their freedom. They want the ability to move in space without threat of harm. Um, those are basic aspects of human dignity and human rights that I think should pervade our society and yet to this day do not. And, and, um, and, and if folks are reacting to somebody else's assertion that they deserve equal opportunity, equal dignity, equal respect, they need to do some introspection around where that's coming from for them. Um, there's so much of this work that I think gets focused on um, being out and, and doing and engaging, which are all very valid um, and important facets of, of social change, right? We, want, we need to be out there doing something. But there is at least as much work that needs to happen on the intrapersonal level by really taking time to be introspective, um, really sift through why are these particular feelings coming up for me? What do they mean for me? What, what lenses am I experiencing the world through that might be shaping the way that I'm responding to these things? Um, it's, it's been interesting to watch social media and see so many people kind of waking up kind of all of a sudden, oh, there's racism in the United States, right? Um, or there's sexism or there's these other things. And, um, and, and that's good that there's that awareness happening but that needs to be a sustained effort as much as outward, you know, volunteerism and donating and being engaged in society. Yeah. Um, we have to sustain the interior effort on continuing to unpack our own biases, assumptions, and, and frames of reference. So, you know, it's really interesting that you say that because a lot of people have now been woken up, right? They saw the eight minutes and 46 seconds. They, they recognize that there are things that really do happen in black and brown communities as it, as it relates to police brutality and things along those lines. Um, and so then because of that, they've not been able to turn away from it, right? So this pandemic, um, these double pandemics, as some people say, um, have caught us at the right time um, to be able to be introspective perhaps and to kind of think about those things, but also to kind of push yourself and to challenge yourself to do something. And a lot of times, you know, there's this narrative that comes up from people who are, who's like, well, help me know what to do. Help me know what to say. And uh, what can I do? How can I be of help? And how can I be an ally? And, and you know, and, and in some regards, I'm like, well, you really can't if that's the question you're asking. Because it should come innately, right? It should, what do you want to do? How do you want to insert yourself into the equation? Um, if I need to tell you what to do, then all those things that I was trying to do and teaching those lessons prior to the pandemic um, kind of failed, right? So, you know, how do you pick up the mantle and, and, and make the decision? You know, I often say, if you fell and cut your leg, you would know what to do. You would go through the motions. So when this presents itself to you, what do you do? You know, why do you need a black or brown person or a gay or trans person to tell you what to do if you say your heart's in it in the first place? Uh, how does that resonate with you? Um, what's your thoughts? Um, well, I think it's a both and, right? Like um, to the first point, you, you have to do the internal work, but you've got to bridge it to the outside, right? Like you've got to actually do something with these awarenesses with your introspection. Um, but for a lot of, especially, um, you know, college students, for instance, um, they maybe haven't cultivated the skillful means that, that, that you're alluding to, to be able to go out there and engage in ways that feel impactful 
appropriate and responsive. We know what to do when we fall and cut our leg, likely because we've been taught what to do when we fall and cut our leg. Unfortunately, society at large has failed in a lot of ways to educate people on how to engage in social change initiatives. And, and so this is new territory for a lot of folks. So how do you get past the fear, right? Because that's a yeah. lot of it, right? So it's not so much that you don't know what to do, is that you have this fear that somebody's going to see you as mm -hmm. uh, something that, you're, that you don't want to be seen as or, or something along those lines. I mean, the same way we get over any fear, we get out there and we try. And we know that we're going to fail um, on occasion. Um, and again, remember, if we're, getting, if we're getting pushback from the outside about something, that's an opportunity for us to, to do some introspection. Um, it shouldn't be an opportunity for us to check out. Right, um, or, to to personal, stop. right? or to take it very personal that somebody yeah. challenging you to kind of do better. What are some of your thoughts, Dr. Latrick? And I, I encourage people, to, I say, you know, people say, well, I can't really do what you did. And I said, my response is, you know, everybody can't be on the front lines, but everybody can get off the sidelines. And those are some of the steps I talked about earlier about the various levels that the, they could become engaged. But I think we are so particularly fortunate to be on a college campus with a generation of young people who I think are more compassionate and committed to social justice than previous generations. Okay. Uh, they're looking for ways to express that. I know I got involved early on uh, with the UCF football team. Um, I mean, I've enjoyed watching them for years, uh, but they were boycotting uh, the first four days of practice this year. And I was asked if I would come in and speak to the, to the foot, football team. So I did and talked about racism, how they could get involved and became an advisor to Greg McRae, who is the leader of, uh, of the student athletes on the football team. They have a lot of leaders um, and spoke to a, a group of activists that, that he was putting together. And that night he put together 250 student athletes from all the American athletic conference team schools uh, to talk about not only the, the safety they wanted to create and during the pandemic, but also how they're gonna be engaged in, in fighting against racism. And, and I can tell you how impressed I was by them, how thoughtful they are, how, how powerfully committed they are to change. And we see that, you know, I'm proud of the world of sports this year. We, we uh, were doing nothing in America in terms of the pandemic until an NBA player tested positively and Silver shut the league down on March 11th. Um, and the next day, the other league started to shut down and finally the country did scientists now estimate that if, if the country had shut down before that, we would have saved 50 to 100,000 lives yeah. uh, during the pandemic. Uh, the sports uh, people began donating significant amounts of money to fight against racism, as well as to fight against the, the virus. Mm -hmm. um, and then the murder of George Floyd happened and athletes, the activism of athletes has been so widespread and so unified and, and so supported now by the leagues uh, you know, and when when the focus shifted back because the pandemic had gotten so much worse in the fall and kind of moved a little bit away from the racial reckoning, the shooting in Kenosha had led the Milwaukee Bucks to walk off the court, right. threatened to pull out of the playoffs, and the league shut down with its players' association in unison, and brought that focus right back on the issue of race. So I'm I'm proud of this world of sport and the contribution that, that they can make on so many different social justice issues. Right. You can apply that to other forms of our life. If you're you know, a, a student leader on campus or you're involved with X organization on campus uh, to, to get it involved. You, you, you speak a really strong sense to um, something that I always think about and that has to do with um, the fact that there are a lot of people who don't want to take the time to understand why sports or, or people who have some sort of celebrity speak out in the ways that they do. Um, there was so much pushback on Colin Kaepernick on taking a knee and that narrative got co-opted and, and it wasn't about um, what he was standing for and what he was trying to represent because I think we, we were in a a space in society where people didn't want to deal with, or like just similar to what Dr. Ricky was talking about, they don't want to necessarily deal with 
the, the, uh, the matter at hand and go introspective and think about it. So it's easy to kind of dis disrupt it, right? The, the narrative and say, oh, you don't love the flag or you don't love our military. And that wasn't the message at all that was being sent. The message that was being sent was, I'm kneeling because I want you during the time that you're looking and, and, and representing the flag, that I want you to recognize that not all people have that fairness or have that ability um, because of the things that are being um, kind of projected towards them or the hatred that's being sent their way um, because of it. So I want to bring attention to that. And we never talk about that. We never talk about the fact that the kneeling was about the fact that there were people who were hurting, right? And the same thing happened with the Black Lives Matter movement. It's like the message got co-opted. It wasn't about the fact that all lives don't matter. It was about the fact that there's something that's happening in society where there's a part of our society that's bleeding. Can we go to it and help to kind of make some change that systemically will make it better for all individuals, not just the people who are seeking that change. And so it, it's, that narrative never gets spoken. And there's something about our culture that allows us to, to, to let us get, um, I guess, distracted from really what the message is. Because I go back to there's a fear that if it does come to pass, that people are going to lose something in the process. a really good point <clears throat> and I'd also like to mention you know that sports can be a really unifying force as well um, you know we're all living in Orlando um, Matt I'm not sure when you got here but you know to me the most impactful day of my 25 years here was the the day of the Pulse nightclub shooting and um, I had just come back, my wife and I and daughter had just come back from Muhammad Ali's funeral where there was this uplifting uh, spirit that, that Ali's, Ali had left to, to the world. And then the Pulse nightclub shooting was like a punch in the gut. Yeah. But I don't know if you remember what happened the following week on Friday night, the Tampa Bay Rays had their regularly scheduled pride game, which they did every year anyway. But the Rays averaged 6,500 fans a game. They're the worst attended sports franchise in the history of modern sports. Uh, and they announced that they were going to have an on-field on ceremony for the survivors, the victims, uh, and the first responders, and, and dedicated to that. They sold all 43,000 tickets and said they could have sold 100,000 tickets because people wanted to be together to express their unity with, with the victims and, and survivors. The next night, Orlando City Soccer had its regularly scheduled game, 37,000 people in the stands. And when my wife and I walked into the arena, we looked at this, looked at the stands and every section had organized on Facebook of, by the fans, a different color shirt. So the entire stadium was a rainbow flag. It was incredibly moving, right? When I think of the shooting at Stoneman Douglas a couple of years ago, so horrific for us in Florida, as well as the nation. Uh, nine days after the shooting, the Stoneman Douglas ice hockey team had to make a decision to whether or not they were going to compete in the statewide tournament, they were picked last. They had a, a not a, didn't have a good team. Plus, they didn't know if it was appropriate to compete, but they decided to. Not only did they compete, they won the state championship, even though they were picked last. The 17 players came back to, to the high school with the 17 medals and placed it on the, the memorials of the 17 victims and the students. And Stoneman Douglas said it was the first day that they could actually breathe since the shooting. So sports has that ability to to bring that human touch to all aspects of our lives if, if we embrace that possibility. Embrace it. Yeah, it can be empowered by it. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that. Any thoughts? I think that um, what was coming up for me as you were sharing that is this, the, the, the transformational power of community in these moments of where, where the light shines so bright on the social dilemma that you can't help but feel compelled and drawn in to do something. Where I struggle sometimes is where we see these fits and starts of energy and momentum mm -hmm. for a bit and then it tapers off and, and the, the, the movement or the action and the activity um, that could really do some, some ongoing good seems to fizzle out 
some of that has to do with what you were talking about of the co-opting of narratives and, and the depleting of social capital of the movements. And some of it I think has to do with not knowing how to sustain that energy for the long haul. Right, um, because a lot of folks, um, experienced and inexperienced social justice activists alike, will burn out very quickly, pour all their self, their energy into what they're trying to address, and they never take the time to recover and recuperate. Um, I've worked with so many students who have engaged in um, protest actions and Black Lives Matter and Diane's who have just they they've gone gosh darn near 24 seven for weeks straight at the detriment of their academics, the de detriment of their social lives, at the detriment of their health and well-being. Um, and I always encourage those students like this is a this is the long game, right? This is the marathon. Mm -hmm. um, and you've got it, you gotta take water breaks. Yeah. You've got to refuel. You've exactly. got to take care of yourself or you're going to fizzle out. We need folks who want to engage for the long haul to do that. That self-care is not selfish, it's important. Yeah, you know, it kind of reminds me of uh, this quote by Eleanor Roosevelt um, that is kind of germane to this day. It says, where, after all, do universal rights, human rights begin? In small places, close to home, so close and so small that they cannot be seen on any maps of the world, unless these rights have meaning there. They have little meaning anywhere without concerted citizens action to uphold them close to home. We shall look in vain for progress in the larger world. And it goes like hand in hand with the fact that this, this, this is a marathon. Um, we're not gonna get quick fixes. There's so many times that people are coming in and say, I want this. And they have these demands. I mean, even at UCF, there's these demands that, you know, we want this and we want it now. And we recognize that change is slow. Um, change has been slow. If we think about it just from the, the 1960s and civil rights movement and, and where we are today. And have we moved? Yes, the needle has moved for sure. But in, in a very real sense, it's almost like the sloth, right? It's almost like the snail. It's like, it's, it's, a, it's a slow and steady space or uh, uh, a pace that we're taking, but at the same time, we're seeing it and we're encouraged by it and we're empowered by it. And so that's for me, that's what keeps me going, right? I'm passionate, not just for my own personal reasons, but also for my future, for my eight-year-old daughter's future. And that keeps me on, on the pathway to not get burnt out, right? To not overwork myself to be that place where you just spoke about, where you know you didn't take the water break. Well, the water break is essential in order to kind of help you with and have that mindset that this is this is for the long haul. It didn't happen overnight. If, if it happened overnight, it would have happened in the '60s, right? Dr. Lapchik, what's your thoughts? Well, I appreciate what both of you just said. I mean, I remember. Um, when the Bucks walked off the court, there was a discussion, should we resume play or just end the season? And a lot of, I heard a lot of players say, I've been doing this for three months and not much has changed. And I had to not laugh like it's funny, but you know, we're talking about a nation where the Forbes list of the 400 wealthiest Americans have an aggregate wealth greater than all 42 million African-Americans combined. That's a lot to overcome. It affects every other aspect of systemic racism that we're talking about. But the reason I feel, and I, I talk about that sustainability all the time, Matt, when I speak to groups, because that's the difference. So are we gonna sustain this or is it gonna be a, a news cycle uh, thing that, have, that turn, turns again? And it reminded me that in 1977, <clears throat> I was in Lusaka in Zambia at an anti-apartheid conference <clears throat> that was being organized by the UN. And I was with my mentor, his name was George Hauser. And I think I've told you about him, Kent. If he was alive today, he'd be 104. He died when he was 100. But in 1944, he was on the first Freedom Ride. He founded the Congress of Racial Equality, spent two years in prison as a conscientious objector, founded the anti-apartheid movement, founded the anti-colonial movements in this country. And he was a white guy. So he was a role model for me that it was possible for a white guy to have an impact in this area. But in, in Lusaka that day, I said, George, do you think we're ever going to live to see the day that 
South Africa, Namibia, and as it was then called, Rhodesia will be free. Mm. There was no reason historically to believe there would be. We're 12 years from Mandela being released. There weren't even any rumors that he'd be released. There were rumors were that he would die of tuberculosis in prison. Apartheid was at, was at its height in South Africa and dominated uh, Namibia and, and Zimbabwe as well. Yeah. But George said, Rich, I feel it in my gut that this is different, that we will live to see that day. On May 10th of 1994, George Hauser and I stood on the steps of the Union Buildings in Pretoria as Nelson Mandela's guests at his inauguration. And I knew that day that if that man who was a political prisoner for 27 years in the most racist government on the face of the earth in the second half of the 20th century could yeah. become its president, that anything and everything was possible. Yeah. That's what I have in my gut today, that feeling, nothing's yeah. common sense or history telling me that. I just feel it in my gut that this is gonna be sustained. I think these young people, as I said earlier, have those different feelings. They have the technology with smartphones to, the police can no longer deny history in those cases anymore because we've captured it. Um, you know, with social media, they can communicate so much faster than, than everybody else, including around the world. Right. We have this tremendous group of allies in the movement with our athletes who are in, in the sports we see most are overwhelmingly African-American. Yeah. With powerful voices with resources to to support their movements i just think this is different and and i'm hopeful that yeah, this is definitely a new a new new order that's in place right now and i agree with you so heartily you know often when you when you talk about that like one of the men that i admire in this world um is nelson mandela and just the, the fact that you knew him and had been touched by him I feel touched by him and, and I was touched by him in his narrative anyway, when I got to go to South Africa and, and go to Robbins Island and see where he was housed and to see what he had to go through to see that rise, right? Uh, so when you think about it in terms of prison reform and people coming out now and, and what they can do um, and, and how we just shouldn't shun those who maybe made a bad decision at one point in their life and, and have paid the price or paid their dues to kind of move forward, right? Um, one of the things that comes up for me is the COVID-19 crisis has um, fueled a very much so in the, in the United States, a very deepening understanding of poverty and what people are going through, um, the rising inequalities that are going through our, our, our lives right now, the structural and entrenched discrimination and other gaps in human rights protection that's happening, that's going on. Um, these measures, you know, we need to figure out how can you can close them, right? How do we close the gaps, right? How do we help advance human rights so that everybody can kind of be a part of this, right? Because we're resilient. We've been able to get through certain things. I know black and brown people are resilient. Um, they keep coming back, right? They keep coming back to a country that's asked that, and asking for permission to have equity um, to a country that hasn't treated them very well, right? So when you talk about sustainability, um, we, you have it. You have it in, in the guts and souls of people who really want this. There's nothing that they want from the United States of America other than the right to have the title of American mean something in their lives, right? And so um, I think it's really important for us to kind of recognize that. And so that's why I appreciate your stories and what you kind of bring to the table uh, with that, because all of us have to figure out how to be at the table, right? And share our narratives. And so what do you think are some of the ways that we can be able to validate and bring voices to the table? Get enough seats there first. As, as somebody, uh, a civil rights leader, I, I believe it was Shirley Chisholm said, I'm going to get a seat at the table. And if there's no seat at the table, I'm going to bring my own chair. Bring my own chair. Sometimes yeah. you, have to, you have to insert yourself, but hopefully we've reached a point where we want to listen to other people. We want to bring people involved and get them engaged. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to, really proud to tell you that Randolph Bracey, the state rep, is, is a graduate of our program. <clears throat> you probably saw today that he introduced legislation in the Florida uh, State House to uh, eliminate uh, all convictions off the records of people who had uh, misdemeanor marijuana offenses, which is a huge number of black and brown people. 
Right. Uh, Randy was the, was the one who uh, had reparations go in for the people of Ocoee. First time a reparations bill has been passed in the country. Now, this was a guy who was a basketball player at William Mary, came in and was imbued with this spirit to make the, make the, the different world. We, we all have that capacity in us if we mobilize it. Right, mobilize, thanks. Dr. Ricky. I think it's, it's really critical to recognize that anytime there's a, a major disaster or crisis that it, it, tends to, it tends to exacerbate pre-existing social conditions. So, you know, we think about um, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and the, the, how it really illuminated um, the, the, the poverty issues that existed before and then were exacerbated by the flood. Um, and and that, that carried a lot of weight and it carried a lot of momentum and folks donated generously for about six to eight months after the hurricane. And then that sustained effort kind of tapered off. Um, we're, we're in the middle of, of a crisis of disaster level proportions that has sustained now over the course of months and will continue to sustain for months likely to come. Right. The disparities that this is going to exacerbate and is already exacerbated are going to be felt for, I, I, I worry decades. So I think it's important for us to remember while we are addressing head-on racial justice issues, for instance, that we are also realizing that economic justice issues are connected into that yeah. and that we are pushing our lawmakers and legislators to remember that in as they're trying to figure out what to do about the present pandemic, yeah. um, that um, in particular, um, you know, there have been some some numbers produced out there. I'm not going to recall them off the top of my head, but in particular, um, folks who are low income, um, whose jobs were easily removed uh, by their employers, um, uh, women who have stayed home as caretakers in the midst of the pandemic, who have sacrificed their employment to do so, um, and Black and Brown families who uh, who at those intersections have been disproportionately disadvantage, disadvantaged yeah. economically because of the pandemic. Right. So there's a lot we can do around that, you know, legislative action, working in our local communities to ensure that people have access to resources that are just as impactful and powerful now, right. but must remain powerful and impactful for months, possibly years to come. You know, the tie-in there, when you talked about Hurricane Katrina, and so I was working in Missouri at the time, and I took the summer off um, and I went down to New Orleans and was a part of trying to rebuild, right? Um, I'm a counselor by trade. So there was a lot of conversations with people and there was so much pushback, right? There was so many hurdles that we had to, to overtake um, because you couldn't be there because you, could, you weren't licensed in, in Louisiana. I said, well, license doesn't have anything to do with the fact that people are hurting right now and they need to get over the, the impact of that storm on their lives. And so, um, and I, I think about that and what you talked about in terms of it falling to the wayside when I've gone back on multiple occasions back to Louisiana and that ninth ward still has not recovered in my eyes, you know, and again, I'm not there every day. So I don't know the, the, the ongoing changes that are happening in that community. But I remember going back five years later and still seeing debris um, in people's yards and houses that still had the X's across the number and, um, and things along those lines. Um, and that people don't see that, right? They were able to walk away from that, right? Um, and I think if social media was different and, and at that time, and we were able to see firsthand, like we saw that eight minutes and 46 seconds, that maybe that the, the relief efforts that went into helping those people would have been a little bit more um, stronger or re more resounding in terms of that. Um, but it was, it's about timing in some regards. Um, they were a forgotten people, uh, unfortunately, of very forgotten people by our government, um, by our by by just everyday citizens in some regards, um, to recognize um, the humanity that we needed to put into that place, um, so that it didn't um, 
look like it did. Um, um, and, and in some cases, and I don't know, I haven't been there in about five years now, but I, I wonder how much change has also occurred in that area um, since that time. Well, so that's tie our three lives together. I went there with the Orlando Magic eight days after the storm to Baton Rouge as the first people were brought in, out. And the people I met, uh, who everything was lost, but they were so um, forgiving and they weren't angry, they were resilient, that I decided we were going to go back. And as you may know, the government did not allow, didn't bring electricity or water into the Lower Ninth Ward for 15 months. Yep. So nobody could put down a FEMA trailer. So they didn't come back until December 2006, which is the first time we went there. Our students have gone there and with me and my wife and daughter for 58 weeks since December of 2006. We worked on 158 homes over that period of time. And I can tell you that today, one in nine families that lived in the Lower Ninth Ward in 2005 is back. One in nine families. You can pick any natural disaster anywhere in the world and there's a significantly higher percentage of people who are back living in that community. It's gone from a majority African-American community to a minority African-American community. I 100% believe that was by the design of the city fathers who wanted white control of a very wealthy city. Yep. Uh, so the, the problems is emblematic of racism in the country um, and our failure to serve all of, all of the citizens of our country. All the citizens. Thank I think that's my concern too, whenever we talk about recovery, um, recovery, connects to everything we've been talking about. Um, recovery can, um, and in that case in point example, did, does, and continues to exacerbate inequality if done poorly. Um, any, any sort of recovery really needs to, to consider and center the needs of the most disenfranchised and, and, and they have to have a seat at the table in discussing what recovery looks like. One of the difficulties with the Lower Ninth Ward in particular is that nobody from the Lower Ninth was invited to that conversation. Um, there was a lot of outside organizations that came in and decided they were gonna fix, right, fix. And that's, that's emblematic of so many um, natural and ecological and health disasters. Um, that, that folks forget to listen to the people most impacted. Right, and so not only I think that they need a seat at the table, they also have to have allies at the table as well. And people who can speak up, because because they were not at the table, they don't know what to say sometimes so that others who are at the table can hear and listen. So the allies become very important to kind of be able to share that narrative when the voices at the table don't help or are not able to, to, um, to kind of Put it out there because you know part of i think what this is is that uh the, the lack of belief in someone's story or someone's narrative um and then if they passionately share what it is then they're seen as um an outsider or they're wanting too much or they're looking for a handout and i don't think anybody's looking for a handout as much as they're looking for equity been uh, an amazing experience for our students, Kent, because before they ever enter a classroom, they've spent a week rebuilding homes in, in New Orleans. So they're not coming into the class on that Monday morning saying, hi, my name's Kent, my name's Rich. They will have worked with us, seen mud in my face and paint on my wife's hair and sweated together. And it's a different kind of group that we bring into that classroom that day. It's, they've had their lives changed. Right. When, you, when you can, when you can right. participate in some social justice effort, your life is going to change and it's going to be better. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. You know, you, until you touch it, um, you're going to believe those stories. You have to unlearn, right? Until you touch it and are able to see what other people are going through, you don't have to have my same experience, but you have to be able to understand it and have compassion and maybe some, um, some type of, uh, um, and it's not sympathy, but it's more of, you know, you actually recognizing that somebody's gone there and and so you're responsive culturally responsive to what the needs are of those individuals uh we are coming up on the end of this hour i didn't think it was going to go by this fast gentlemen um and, but it has and uh i know that you have other things to do with your lives um as we move forward but i'm wondering if there's any last minute things that you want to share or say uh, with regards to human rights and um, how ucf can come to be 
really powerful, especially tomorrow um, on the day that we recognize it. Well, I think that, you know, and you're doing a great job of this, Ken, is encouraging our president to take a leadership role and, and spread the discussions about DEI across campus on a regular basis, not just during diversity month, but throughout the year to, to make it an issue that's important to the campus community. Yes, definitely. And to give them the support. And I know he's been getting strong, giving you support in your efforts, which is so critically important to the university. Thank you. I appreciate that. And yes, I definitely have to give um, much kudos to Dr. Um, Cartwright for definitely coming uh, in and making people know. I mean, one of his narratives is compassion and love. And, um, and so I think that's really where, we're, where we need to go. We have to stop being afraid of each other and we have to listen and, and be able to embrace one another without it getting crazy and weird. Um, we can do that. We can love one, one another and, 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 and do some really powerful things to help this university and the world um, become a stronger place. Dr. Ricky. I think um, everything that both of you have shared um, and, and my, my last two cents is just to encourage everyone to do something. You know, if you see injustice and um, or inequality, say something, do something. We might screw up. <laughs> we might make a mess of things. But the important thing is that we tried. Um, and, and to make the world a better place. And I think at its core, um, the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is kind of the catalyst for today's talk, is, is a call for all of us to do better. Yeah. Couldn't have said it any, any more plain than that. Uh, listen, I love you guys. I really do. I appreciate you. Um, being a part of this experience today. Um, I miss you all. Um, don't get a chance to see you um, in person um, like we've had in the past, but I thank you for being a part of today's podcast um, and sharing your stories, your narratives. I think it's really important. Um, and just very quickly, Matt, if you can kind of maybe kind of throw out um, any information about um, OIE and what might be important for people if they're experiencing anything that um, that deals with human rights. Sure. Um, you know, the first two articles of the Universal Declaration are everybody is equal and discrimination isn't tolerated. Um, the mission of the Office of Institutional Equity is to enforce civil rights laws and our university non-discrimination policy here at UCF. If anybody has concerns that they may have experienced discrimination or discriminatory harassment, and as I mentioned before, that would include sexual and interpersonal violence, um, stalking, um, sex-based, power-based violence, um, then they can uh, contact our office to discuss accessing resources and support to help them heal and come into wholeness again but also uh, explore options for um, investigation and possible remedies to that, to that concern. Um, our website is pretty easy to remember. It's oie.ucf.edu. Um, the Title IX website is letsbeclear.ucf.edu. And anybody needs just visit one of those two pages or give us a call to, to discuss resources, support, and options available to them. Excellent. Dr. Lashley, anything from DeVos that we need to be aware of right now? Well, I'll start with a, it's gonna sound like a curveball. My, one of my favorite filmmakers is Spike Lee and he's made a lot of great movies, but the best title of any movie is what I would tell people to do, do the right thing. Do the right thing, love it. Thank you all for being here today. Um, thank you for organizing all for it. today. Um, I want to give a shout out to the UCF Foundation Office because they in part sponsored this podcast, but um, feel free to share this um, wide. It doesn't have to necessarily be um, with uh, people at UCF. I mean, this narrative, this message, I think is very important um, to go out there. We have a very special episode on Friday. Um, it's going to be two hours on Friday. Maybe this one should have been two hours as well. Um, and we're gonna be talking about Black Lives Matter. Um, I have a few panelists coming in and some from the UCF community, and we're gonna really kind of tackle what that is and what it means and, 
and why um, Black Lives Matter. And so um, thank you all for being part of our show today. Uh, we'll see you on Friday. Thanks. Thanks for listening to our show, which is brought to you by UCF Foundation. This has been Matters of Diversity with Dr. B.